0: Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend and colleague Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In this, our final episode of the season, we reveal that we have actually been quietly arming sleeper cells around the world, and that we are now sending out a call to arms for listeners to rise up and become quantitative leaders in their own fields of study. Along the way, we also discuss scaling fences, bad business decisions, Henry V, Braveheart, saddles and horses, sideways fish, Legos, Kapla blocks, meta nerds, ice cream sandwiches, pyramid schemes, and knuckleheads. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: You know what? I think I might actually be a little bit sad.
0: I don't know if I've ever seen you sad.
1: This is our last episode of the season. And that makes me feel a little sad.
0: What makes me equally sad is I didn't realize we had a season. <laughs> Dude, we really have to communicate about this stuff a little bit better.
1: I, I, don't, I don't know what a season is, actually, but but I think we just had one. Okay. Shall we recap? All
0: right. But I'm a little worried because <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, but on the last episode of A Lot of Seasons, somebody dies. <laughs> And given there are two of um. us, <laughs> and you were the one who knew it was the last episode of the season, my odds are not looking good.
1: Yeah. Hang on, Bauer's texting me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh. I see how this is going to work. You're not going to die on the planet, guy. I'm not?
1: What's my last name?
0: It's, uh, um, uh...
1: Nobody knows. You know why? Because my character isn't important enough for a last name, because I'm gonna die. <laughs> Should we talk about some stats for this crazy air quote season? Yes, I wanna hear stats. You and I
0: have a passing interest in numbers and numbers yeah. that summarize things. Mm-hmm. But to preface it, it's funny to think about, before we even look at the hard numbers, what our original intents were, mm-hmm. because they were very low aspirations. <laughs> I remember (gasps) Uh hanging out with you up in Baltimore, Mm -hmm. and we were kind of shooting the bull about how we loved our day jobs. We loved Mm -hmm. every, well, I was going to say every aspect of our day jobs. Eh. We loved the vast majority of our day jobs, Eh. but we were bored. Mm -hmm. Another paper, another grant. It's like, yeah, I know how this plays out. I know how this one ends. And so we thought, how hard could it be to plagiarize car talk? Totally. Totally. Hello and welcome to Car Talk on National Public Radio with us, Click and Collect the with Brothers. And just hang out and have fun. And I remember two things. One is we would do an episode every other week that mm-hmm. under no circumstance was going to exceed 30 minutes. <laughs> Aim for 20, but don't go past 30. It was 20 minutes was our mark and I was <laughs> set on this. I our know. target was 20 Nobody would listen beyond 20 minutes, but under no circumstance would it hit 30. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've had any episodes that have been under an hour. All <laughs> right, so that was one hard and fast rule that Greg, if I'm gonna do this, that's right, that that's the rule. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that I remember sitting on the bench, do you remember as you brought me into a construction area <laughs> on the inner harbor in Baltimore? And it's you true. kept pondering to me in genuine curiosity. <laughs> Why it was such a beautiful section of the pier and we had it to ourselves. And I looked at you and I said, dude, we scaled
1: a fence
0: to get in here. I
1: I was so in the moment, I totally forgot that I'd actually scaled a fence. (laughs) Yeah,
0: So it was every other week, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the other one was... It will be a success if 100 people a week listen to it because there can't be that many people who are interested in this. I just want to set the stage of what our expectations were. First, your breathtaking obliviousness to climbing (laughs) a chain link fence and then wondering why nobody else is around us. Uh (laughs) But the other one was 20 minute episodes every other week Mm -hmm. for 100 people. So go ahead yeah. and hit me with some of the numbers following those lofty goals that we had.
1: To be clear, I don't mean to sound braggy at all and there because there are podcasts that do much more. For me, it's just I'm agog that there are more than your mom out there. This is episode number 27 and there will be substance by the way. Just just to alert people. <laughs> there will be substance.
0: <laughs> well, could I clarify as much yeah. substance as we usually deliver?
1: Fair, <laughs> Fair enough. This is episode number 27. Uh, We have over 40,000 downloads, which I could never, ever have imagined. And the amount of revenue generated is really the most mind-numbing.
0: This one was most exciting for me, is I didn't realize the monetization impact (sighs) that this would have. It's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, I think we've lost... $800? $800?
1: I think that's about right.
0: That think- might be conservative. <laughs> we, we've lost between mm-hmm. $800 and $1,000, I would imagine. Yeah.
1: It's a good thing nobody in our professional lives puts us in charge of budgets. You know, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just say that. To be
0: super clear, mm-hmm. this is in no way self-congratulatory. This <laughs> is like, holy crap, I didn't realize... There were so many knuckleheads that Mm -hmm. were similar to us who like thinking about these things and arguing (laughs) about these things. A new episode in a single week, what are we at, about 800?
1: 800 to 1,000, depending on how much you talk. (laughs) So
0: we'll leave it to the listener to decide which end of the confidence interval Uh that causal effect is. Uh But that's what's so exciting to me is how many People there are out there a lot of people who are just ones and twos in in departments on their own as they don't have playmates they don't have colleagues who talk about these things as I think that's great fun I don't know if I even told you this story I was at my brother's house his best friend came over their son is a musician in L A he was super sweet and was asking about the podcast and I was mm-hmm. saying about how we had had. 2,000 downloads and he was like, dude, that's awesome, that's amazing, oh, well done <laughs> and later that night my brother came over to me with his cell phone and this kid, he has a YouTube station and he himself has videos that have over a million downloads <laughs> apiece And I know Times like this You just take it slow and he's a twenty-year-old kid who is like just yeah. this sweet, cool kid to hang out with. Dude, that's amazing. Well done. Yeah.
1: I'm like, Yeah. Uh,
0: it's all relative,
1: right? It is. One of the reasons we were aiming for twenty to thirty minutes a week is that we thought, you know, okay, this will be manageable given the jobs that we have. How much time would you say each <laughs> we, we do this each week? I thank the university. For offering Uh me
0: a job that doesn't track how I use my time. (laughs) Yeah. You and I, the number of things that we text back and forth during the week, some bonehead idea, a fake sponsor. (laughs) So we have a series of professionals who help us bring this each week. We can start with your, how old is Tate now?
1: Oh, God, I should know this. Yeah, you should have.
0: That was really bad. 13? he's now 13. He's 13
1: now. He's 13 now.
0: We established early on that Greg recorded him on his cell phone playing his saxophone in his underwear in his bedroom. You know, I'm starting to see an underwear theme with you and your (laughs) your sons. And so we thank his son, Tate, Mm -hmm. for the music. My 15-year-old daughter, note that I know Mm -hmm. how old she is, um, yeah, well, whatever. You got two of them. I know, so you right? Can... <laughs> I was just going to say, is if I know one, I know the other one. Mm-hmm. She drew the little quantitoid monster mm-hmm. that we're going to try to work into things.
1: You'll see more. Do you want to throw mm-hmm. out a thanks to Tessa? Tessa Johnson, she was sort of like, you know when your grandparents couldn't figure out how, how to run a VCR? <laughs> they would ask you, you know, what? how do you do... Um, Tessa helped us out with website stuff, technology stuff, and a lot of art-related things. Whenever you see our face appearing on someone else's body in some artwork, Tessa is the master (laughs) at those kinds of things. So in fact, the logo that we have, that there are hundreds of people all over the world who have that sticker, Tessa designed our logo. So definite shout out to her.
0: I do take some minor exception, though, with the graphics mocked up for Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Mm -hmm. because she put me as the short guy, (laughs) and I was... I love that. Of course you did. For for once.
1: For (laughs) once. Uh
0: (laughs) And then just wrapping up with the obvious last one, it's just all of you.
1: Absolutely.
0: Greg and I can't convey the sincerity of... Gratitude that we feel for just everybody tolerating us and just being interested in what we're talking about
1: The lovely interactions that we've had the wonderful tone of sharing an upbeat tone for people on twitter and and the interactions that we've had It's just such a terrific community and we're we're very happy to have you uh, along the way
0: I'm thinking about what our initial motivation was which Mm -hmm. was Really just something fun, maybe a little pedagogy, maybe a little dissemination Mm-hmm. All pretty thin, I think, from an intellectual, hedonistic kind of way, right? But what I found, and I don't know if you felt this or not, I started to feel like we accidentally started building these sleeper cells <laughs> across the intellectual <laughs> community. All right, now I'm going to beat you to the point. Pi- I- Wha- <sighs> All right, go ahead. Can go to the whale petting machine if you want. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Everything with you. We have been arming an insurgency (laughs) and we've drilled into things like reviewing and Mm. writing grants, reviewing grants. Pros and cons of factor analysis. Scoring, how can we do better with scoring? What are the benefits of integrative data analysis? We had a lot of fun arguing about power. I'm still hoping to work the eggplant emoji into (laughs) NIH power analyses. Validity, reliability, invariance, all of these things. But I think we've unintentionally been arming an insurgency. And if you're going to throw the last episode of the season on me, Mm -hmm. I think we need to send our coded signal to the insurgency to (laughs) rise up. So I think somehow we have managed to unintentionally arm an insurgency through a series of coordinated sleeper cells. (laughs) Highly
1: coordinated. (laughs) Uh, I feel it. I feel it coming. I feel it coming. What? You okay, are, go hit me. You are gonna say it is a call to arms, aren't you? You're gonna say that. <laughs> I wasn't, but I like <laughs> you it. You totally were. You totally were. Sleeper cells, insurgency, uprising. You had just no. This
0: is like a Henry V. While any speaks that fought with us, upon Saint Crispin's day. <laughs>
1: Okay, so we need a call to
0: arms. Why don't you give us a
1: call to arms? All right. I've never given a call to arms before. And don't lose my energy, man. I I, I was
0: like (laughs) Henry V on St. Crispian's Day, and I turned to you and... (laughs) What?
1: Over? Did you say over?
0: Nothing is over until we decide it is! Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no!
1: German? Forget it, he's rolling.
0: Uh-huh. Should we form a committee to discuss okay. this? What are we rising up against? What's our purpose?
1: Our purpose, Patrick, is to defeat complacency, for people out there to rise up against the ignorance, rise up against the mediocrity. We to rise up, time to take a shot. We gonna rise up, rise
0: up. <laughs> All right. Rise up against complacency to charge people out there with becoming quantitative leaders in their
1: substantive fields. Absolutely. So those people who are listening, the vast majority of you are not quantitative methodologists by your own definition of quantitative methodologists. Maybe we should iron that out in just a moment, but you you don't consider yourself that. But if we look at the bios of people who follow us on Twitter, for example, Almost all of you are in substantive fields, and yet you are with us every single week listening to the episodes. Why is that? Obviously, you have some sort of quantitative bent. You can't deny that you have this quantitative bent. You're listening to us. So let's just get this off the table. You drank the Kool-Aid. You are quantitative in your orientation. So what are you going to do with that? Are you here for entertainment or quantitainment, as we say? I think that you can be here for more than that. And I might not be (laughs) sleeper cell guy, uprising guy. This day,
0: we rescue a world from mysticism and tyranny. And usher in a
1: future brighter than anything we can imagine. (laughs) The (laughs) (laughs) victory! But... I think that people out there really have the capacity to try to raise the bar in their own fields quantitatively and to help usher in what we might consider to be the next generation methodologically within their fields.
0: The thing that drives me insane is this notion of what makes a quantitative methodologist. There is a perception, and I think it's on both sides of the fence of perceiving what it takes to be a quantitative methodologist. But if you're inside the wire of saying that you're part of the club and other people are not part of the club, it drives me insane that there is some notion that there are quantitative methodologists and there are are users of that. And... I really sincerely believe that all of us, as empirical scientists, are quantitative methodologists. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And there are unique skill sets, there are unique strengths, there are unique perspectives, and there are an infinite number of ways that we can all contribute to the quantitative sciences and the empirical sciences in your own substantive area of research that continue to drive the field forward in new and exciting ways. Years ago, met with a guy who was writing a K award and he wanted me to be an advisor on mentor committee or something. And at one point over lunch, I was getting a weird vibe and I was like, well, you could learn this, you could learn that. And he was kind of dragging his feet and saying, well, I don't really, I'm not that interested in doing that. No, I wouldn't want to take those classes. And I paused and I said, well, what's your motivation for this project? And he said, oh, I just want my membership card to the quantitative club. And I was uncharacteristically speechless. The very notion (laughs) that there's a quantitative club and that you need to have an entry Mm -hmm. card to come in, not only was it just insulting, Mm -hmm. but it just made me sad at that perspective. And I actually excused myself and I said, if that's what your motivation is, I'm not the guy to help out. Mm -hmm. Some of the greatest contributors to quantitative methodology... Have come up through substantive areas, mm-hmm. if you think about people like Steve Roudenbush yeah. who came up through education and wanted to improve the educational system for students who were at disadvantage, Dave Kenny is coming up through a social psychology, Peter Bentler was a clinical psychologist. Ken Bolin is a sociologist. (laughs) Leona Aiken, Steve West, John Nesselrode. You can just run down the list of some of the most influential people in the field who were substantive researchers. And those are some of the thought leaders in quantitative methodology itself. But think about the even larger number of people who have dedicated themselves to using advanced quantitative methods to drive their field forward in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise.
1: Absolutely. And there are people out there right now who are starting to make inroads within their own fields, who are being brave enough. And I say brave enough because... It takes a certain amount of courage to try to be a quantitative methodologist or do things that it would be labeled as quantitative in an environment that might not historically have focused on those kinds of things. I mean, I have just a few people who come to mind. Regis Comperta in chemical education at San Diego State is doing things with reliability, reliability. Um, different measurement issues as they arise in that field. Alan Goodboy at uh, West Virginia University in communication studies, trying to do quantitative things in that field. Uh, in linguistics, you have Tova Larsson, corpus linguist, uh, Luke Plonsky, who does second language acquisition at Northern Arizona University. These are people who are trying to bring quantitative methods into domains where people haven't historically thought about them. And there's such a wide variety of ways to do that, and I hope that we can talk about it. Being a quantitative methodologist does not mean necessarily that you are grinding through all of the mathematics of things. As we've told as we've talked about on other episodes, there's such a wide spectrum of things that count as quantitative methods and there's so many places where you can enter along that continuum.
0: It's interesting because I can use myself as an example. There are many days that I question whether I myself am, and I'm using air quotes, a quantitative methodologist. I am a clinical psychologist, I emphasized developmental psychopathology. My interests have always been and remain looking at individual variability in risk and protective factors associated with high-risk child development and adolescent development, drug use, aggressive behavior, and how does that transition into young adulthood. And then as these longitudinal studies Mm -hmm. age, these kids are now having children of their own and raising this intergenerational transmission of communicating parent risk to now their children children. I am not a mathematician. I am not a technical guy. I will never publish a paper in Psychometrica. I don't aspire to publish a paper in Psychometrica because that's not how I make contributions to the field. It's not my skill set. I'm not saying that I'm not capable of that if I dedicated the next five years to learning it. I just don't want to. I have Mm interests in other areas. And so this notion of, well, are you a quantitative methodologist or not? I think it's more this concept that we've raised in prior episodes, which is it's a way of thinking about the world. Do you think about your research, your substantive area, your hypotheses? through a quantitative lens. How do we bring empirical data to bear to adjudicate the veracity of a theoretically derived research hypothesis in which we're interested? How do we take unobservable events and assign numbers to them in some principled way? And then how do we use some inferential architecture to try to take a larger amount of information and distill it down to a smaller amount of information so that we can make some informed conclusion about complex systems that we've simplified but have not oversimplified to the point that we've lost fidelity with the data that we observe. Anybody who does any aspect of that is a quantitative methodologist.
1: That's right. And the people that you listed as giants in the field, who all have what we might call applied backgrounds or substantive backgrounds, the reason that they are who they are is because of that background, because they're on that front line. Oh my gosh, did I say front line? Um,
0: <laughs> Here we go. <laughs>
1: We lost Harry tonight. Still with us. And here, they didn't die in vain. But you will. Because you're wrong. Harry's heart did beat for us. For all of us. It's not over. Um, because they're the boots on the ground. No, wait, duh, stop, stop it. No, these are people who interface with the needs that their particular field might have the holes in their field the holes in advancing the knowledge in their field that methodology can help to fill you know whether you're talking about complexities around multi-level data structures whether you're talking about challenges with longitudinal data people who encounter those kinds of things are the people who encounter where the holes are in our methodological understanding and the holes in the substantive understanding and getting those things together motivate both sides, whether it's both sides in terms of different colleagues coming together or both sides of interests within people. So the folks, I think, who do the most interesting methodological or quantitative work are the people who are right there looking at the, the gaps in knowledge, the gaps in substantive knowledge that motivate us to be able to develop these methods. As we've said before, we have no interest in being saddles in search of horses, We really want to look at the problems that exist and see how we can use our craft to to help solve those problems.
0: And to clarify, we need the saddles, Mm -hmm. right? Thank goodness Mm -hmm. there are the women and the men who publish in Psychometrica and JASA and are computational statisticians. That's a critical component. Mm -hmm. Of our field. What we're talking about here is there are other ways of contributing as well that don't require you to have 38 equations in a manuscript, or heaven forbid, not have an R package that you're (laughs) distributing, or whatever (laughs) it might be. I believe that substantive researchers are uniquely well-suited to being at the vanguard of the advancing (laughs) line because you are the boots on the ground. You are the soldiers. You are out on the field while the generals are safely (laughs) on their horses at the tree line. And you know better than the generals do. What are the important questions? What are the unresolved issues? What are hypotheses that can't be tested? What are things you believe to exist that can't be measured? What are models that make inferences that aren't satisfying to you? There are no other people in the field that are better embedded and ensconced and surrounded by the process of research. There is no one better suited Mm -hmm. than to identify where does the field need to go next. Greg and I have been on a lot of committees over a lot of years where there have been a hundred equations, a new optimizer some new Bayesian thing that I pretend to understand that I don't, <laughs> there's still the little sideways fish sign in the oh, Bayesian yeah. That's right. thing. And I've always like, it's either swimming to the left or swimming mm-hmm. to the right. That's the extent of my understanding of Bayesian. A question that I routinely ask is, well, how might this be used in practice? Mm-hmm. And I was in a talk once where the person ended with, we did some baseline simulations and these models don't even begin to converge until you've had a minimum of 500 repeated observations huh it's like all right
1: Mm -hmm. thank you very much everybody Um,
0: thank thank (laughs) you i'll be here all week (laughs) When you're in that position of looking at theta hat and the asymptotic distribution of theta hat, when you might not have an undergraduate's understanding of the substantive applications in which it could be applied, you very much begin a situation where you have the tail wagging the dog. It's very common to see in very technical work, someone in search of a data set Mm -hmm that might be applicable for this particular thing. Well, all of us are the dog that should be wagging the tail, Mm -hmm. which is what is the important substantive question? What are the important hypotheses that need to be evaluated? And how do we do this in as technically a rigorous way as possible to minimize the disjoint between the theoretical model that gave rise to the research hypotheses and the statistical model that's used to empirically evaluate those hypotheses. Because the extent to which there's a gap between those serves as a threat to internal validity and external validity and statistical conclusion validity. We talked about that in just the prior episode. Mm -hmm. I think that We need the dog wagging the tail as what are the important questions that need to be resolved.
1: That's why people who are listening to this... Are perfectly positioned to address these things. They are encountering really cool problems. They have been taking workshops, they have been taking courses, they listen to a darn podcast about quantitative methods. I mean, they have really been building this skill set. And when they figure out cool ways to tackle these problems, in the end, they're not just going to address problems in that particular domain. There will be ways of addressing problems that will translate into other domains as well. So this is is a very very exciting thing, and I think we just want to motivate people to go out there and do it uh, to the extent that they're not already doing it. I think of there as being this continuum along which there are different projects that you can engage in, and without wanting to call it one end of the continuum, I'll say somewhere along that continuum there are uh, translational kinds of projects, and I know for me. The first time that I learn about a new method, I am so crazy excited about it. The first thing I want to go do is tell somebody. And one way to tell somebody is to go teach it. Another way to tell somebody is to write about it. Both of those things really help to solidify my knowledge, help see where I'm weak in things. I remember, as I I think I told the story before, the, the weekend that I had to teach myself latent growth modeling back in the 90s, literature out there at the time was really no help at all
0: i wrote a couple of papers on growth modeling in the
1: 90s exactly so the (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) so one of the first things that i did when i learned about that is i explained it to one of my students i talked it over with him and we went out and we wrote a a teacher's corner piece for a, a counseling related journal And it was a way to formalize my understanding of it and to share my enthusiasm about it with people who I thought might be able to use it. And for people who are out there as part of our audience... You might have journals where a methodological teacher's corner would be greatly welcome for a method, not just because you learned it, but because you can help your field to understand how that method will help your field to advance in terms of the kinds of problems that they will be able to solve. So one of the things along this continuum is looking for ways to disseminate your new knowledge about methodology.
0: And I think those are hugely important outlets. You can't build your entire career around just writing teacher corner-like papers. They used to be looked down on a bit as, well, that's not a novel contribution. It's not like it's a peer-reviewed new method or something, and First, I don't think that holds as much as it used to. But the other is I just could not disagree more. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge advocate for Teacher's Corner because having a new method, having an advanced technique is useless if people don't know how to use it or if people don't know how to incorporate that into their own work. What is kind of funny is one of my highest cited papers that mm-hmm. I have is a Teacher's Corner-like mm-hmm. paper. And if you think about part of our job is to disseminate and to influence the field and to help people do their work better, teacher corner papers are hugely important. And I think both you and I are highly, highly supportive of that.
1: We as methodologists are remiss if we aren't doing that, if we don't have a translational component.
0: So then we're in the spirit of what kind of work can you do? So one is trying to teach others to do it. And as all of us are aware, you really learn something at a deeper level when you try Mm -hmm. to tell somebody else how to do it. And so even the act of writing a teacher's corner like paper helps you you refine your understanding of what the topic is and how you would use it in your own work. Another one that I like is maybe there's a newer novel method. So I do a lot of work in longitudinal and every time multivariate behavioral research or psych methods is published, I hate reading them. I hate looking at them because there's going to be some new method now that I've got to figure (laughs) out. Some new method comes out. Well, a natural question is how does it Mm -hmm. compare to an existing method? So, you and I both have written various kinds of papers where there's some new novel method, we have some meaningful substantive question, and we apply a traditional analytic framework, we apply a novel one, and do a Mm -hmm. compare and contrasting. What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Don't make it a Mm -hmm. horse race. I hate horse races. Is Which one is going to win? But to think about it in a thoughtful, balanced way to say... Mm -hmm. Under these kinds of conditions to evaluate these types of hypothesis, this framework is well suited. But if you're going to ask this particular kind of insight from your data, you need to expand it into here to have that. So having that comparing and contrasting of techniques and then making a theoretically and empirically informed recommendation to how researchers could use that themselves in their own fields... That is a quantitative methodological contribution to the field. Even if you didn't invent the new technique, is doing a thoughtful compare and contrast and recommendations for users is a critical component of moving forward in expanding the tools that we have available to test our hypotheses.
1: Right. So you get people who have traditionally done it using the techniques that you represent as part of your paper. And they look at it and they go, what's wrong with that? And in your paper, you very carefully talk about what the pros are of that, but also what the shortfalls are of this. Usually the techniques that we compare are not these night and day radically different ways to approach things, occasionally they are, but oftentimes they're really variations on a similar theme where a more traditional approach might be viewed as a a more restricted case of of the more general approach not pitching them as wildly different ways of looking at things, but rather looking at the similarities. How does one give you the same thing? How does it give you something different? The idea is that you are trying to get that foot in the door in the journal that you are getting published in and get the foot in the door with your community in terms of getting methodological buy-in for doing some of these kinds of things. So I think that's a great great type of paper for people to be doing. Absolutely.
0: It's come up on prior episodes. We all have the same N by P data matrix. Mm -hmm. What I find so interesting, especially (laughs) in these comparing and contrasting, is you have a set of observed data on a given sample and I simply refuse to believe that one method is somehow magically going to be extracting Mm -hmm. some unique insight that no other method is going to allow. And so Mm -hmm. what it is is If you go into it with eyes wide open on saying each of these is characterizing the data space in a different way, how can I optimize the approach to allow me to test the hypotheses that are most important to me and then present a balanced discussion of these to the reader is ideal.
1: Mm -hmm. And if we take this to maybe the next level methodologically, because the things that we've been talking about so far are illustrations of existing methods, either didactic illustrations or empirical illustrations of them, what about actually coming up with new methods? Uh, That sounds really scary, but I will tell you that you probably have a lot of the pieces in place to be able to do these kinds of things. And as I have characterized previously, a lot of what we do, a lot of what we do is really just Putting pieces together in ways that maybe they haven't been put together before, but it's in service of a need that you have. Statistics, for me, as I've said, is like a big box of Legos. And if you, for those of us who have children, maybe we had a room or a, a basement where all of those Legos were, <laughs> were all over the floor. The cool thing, though, is that when you go down and you say, "I don't have instructions." I'm going to build something that I need for this particular purpose. I would say that characterizes, I can't speak for you exactly, although I can kind of speak for you, it does characterize a lot of the developments that we do. A lot of the developments that we do are really a matter of putting pieces together uh, that have existed, but putting them together in ways that are unique and in service of particular problems. And people who are part of this community... They have so many pieces at their disposal that they can help to craft models that are innovative and deal with the specific problems that they have in their fields.
0: That's exactly right. And we didn't have Legos, but we had these wonderful things called Kapla blocks. And it was a, a hmm. big, giant tub of blocks, but they were all perfect rectangles, all cut exactly the same size. Mm-hmm. And I played with those for two years after my kids quit playing (laughs) with those is the things that you could build and stack and Mm -hmm. to see how high you could go. I think that's a great analogy of looking at quantitative methodology is you have a box of these blocks Mm -hmm. and yes, there are rules. You can write with some of the Lego kits. They tell you exactly what to do. And there are situations when that's exactly what you should do. Mm -hmm. There are other situations that say well there's approach a that gives me a little bit of this that i'm after and there's approach b that gives me a little bit of this other thing that i'm after i want both things at once i'm selfish mm-hmm. i'm greedy i don't want to have a little bit of this or a little bit of that i want both and so i wonder if right it's the poking stick mm-hmm. i wonder if i poke it is it going to bite me which it turns out sometimes it does, and then you have to explain that to your wife. But instead of having one or the others, I wonder if I put this little bit with that little bit if I'm able to do something that I'm not currently able to do, right? That's the entire point of what we're doing is can we build something in a way that we're not currently able to do? I like that one of the most passionate Twitter streams that we fomented over a six-month period had to do with, was the ice cream sandwich discovered or invented? <laughs> I'm like that when we talk about dissemination and intellectual impact, that uh-huh. that's been my main contribution <laughs> to the discussion <laughs> on academic Twitter. Whether you invent it, whether you discover it, whether you just pick up a piece and bolt it on to an existing method yep. to allow you to do that, that's new, that's important, that's novel, that's innovative, and that's moving our field forward. And it ain't over now! Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go!
1: Come on! yep you take a few pieces from your from the Millennium Falcon, a few pieces from the Hogwarts castle, a few pieces from the Death Star, and put them together and make whatever your new creation is.
0: A meta nerd
1: a meta- <laughs> did let's see I didn't throw any Star Trek in there, but I could if you <laughs> a few pieces from the the Kittimer Klingon outpost set <sighs> number. Just keep going. Keep going. Okay. I would say most of what we do, Patrick, really is ice cream sandwiches. You know, we almost never create some crazy recipe from scratch. It's really a matter of putting pieces together. And even new methods, you know, if we said something like latent growth modeling, it's a new and fancy, it's really just confirmatory factor analysis being tricked. Right. Almost everything that we view as a new development is really just a matter of putting pieces together in new and innovative ways. And there's nothing that says people who are out there in our community can't do that themselves or at least can't do that as part of this community that we are in, whether it means literally by themselves or as part of a particular team.
0: Now, what we've been pondering are all the ways that you can work to improve your own research, but you can also lend your skill set to the field in a larger setting. Yes. Both you and I have been on either associate editors or chairs of review committees. We desperately seek... Substantive researchers who are able to comment on quantitative aspects of a particular paper or a grant or a book prospectus or something like that. Another way to raise the tide for all of science is to make yourself available as reviewers, to be on editorial boards, to be on grant review panels, to be on uh, book prospectus review committees. These are sometimes hard because, as we've talked on earlier episodes, these are unfunded mandates, right? As you don't get paid yep. to be a journal reviewer, you don't get paid to do grant review, or if you do, it's like a nickel. Yep. And it's your way of also contributing to the field. You have these skills, you have these experiences, and you want to share them with other peers in the community to help strengthen the entire field. And what I would recommend is reach out to editors, reach out to grant review panel chairs and say, I just wanted to introduce myself. I have these experiences And if you have any manuscripts that come across your desk that's related to these kinds of things, I'd be happy to help out. Not only is that a contribution to the field... And we've established, right, that all of academia is a pyramid scheme,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right? Is that you're an employee and that if you recruit three new employees, you become a manager. And if you recruit three additional managers, you become an executive vice president. Just map grad student, postdoc, assistant professor, full professor. And it is a complete pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. You're making yourself available and contributing to other people's work. But in the process, you're seeing how the field is doing work itself, and that is going to help impact your own work.
1: You can even accomplish this through some of your senior colleagues, people who are mentors. As Patrick said, you can go to editors and people on editorial boards and ask to volunteer, but you can also ask senior people, mentors that you know, what editorial boards are you on? Are there ways that you might be able to help me to make those kinds of connections? Are there ways that I might be able to co-review some things with you if you're not already doing that? So it's, it's, there are a lot of inroads that you can have now. Ideally, there would be senior mentors who are helping you to do those kinds of things already. But to the extent that that's not the case, then damn it, you go out there and you make it happen by contacting people, by asking for that kind of mentorship.
0: If you're a grad student, if you're a postdoc, go to your advisor and say, hey, if you get a manuscript to review, could I do a student review with you? Mm and how it works. And most journals do this. Say I get a manuscript myself to review and it relates to something one of my grad students is working on. I can ask them to provide a review. I will talk to them about their review, kind of teach them how to do a review. Mm -hmm. And then I will send them both to the editor, and the editor gets a freebie review on that. So it's a win-win for everybody is the editor gets a freebie review that they can do with as they please. The student learns the process of reviewing. And you're slowly moving into that way of making a contribution to the field.
1: Yeah, it's a great opportunity for everybody involved. And I will tell you that when I do that with students, you know, we meet and discuss the paper, go through things. I'll tell you, they catch things I don't catch also. So we learn from each other. It's a a win-win for absolutely everybody involved in the pyramid scheme. Um. (laughs) Um, How is this not a pyramid scheme? All right, let me explain again. Phil has recruited me and another guy. Now we are getting three people each. The more people that get involved, the more people who are investing, the more money we're all gonna make. It's not a pyramid scheme. It is a, it's not even a scheme per se. It's, I have to go make a call.
0: One of the big things to realize is you are not alone in this. Absolutely. So one thing that was so shocking to the two of us (laughs) Where how many knuckleheads <laughs> there are out there willing to listen to two idiots prattle on for an hour <laughs> on a good day are organized on a yellow sticky and want to be involved in this process and this way of thinking and this way of contributing to the field. <laughs> you know what we need? Hmm. Quanta tinder. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <You, laughs> so okay so if i build off this which i you mean have people with particular quantitative needs and people with particular quantitative skills okay this is forming in my head
0: oh we could do that too i guess (laughs) yeah let's go with yours I I see how that's yeah, a little did. more
1: helpful. You just meant quant. quant yes, yes, guy. I meant
0: <laughs> I meant that we would try to match yes, people go. with similar interests and goals that could complement one another. All right, that's half. Made. We'll work okay. on. We'll work on that. Okay, but I see where you're coming right. from. All right. um, we are in a team science, a collaborative science, and we can leverage the interests and skills and motivations of those around us mm-hmm. to help us do our own work but also contribute to the broader sciences
1: i'm I'm still thinking about how your goal was to just help quant people hook up <laughs> i love I love that. You know, because <laughs> otherwise we got it, no. Maybe shot. that'll be for season two. <laughs> we got no. We'll shot. just work on. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs>
0: let's put a pin in that one. But let's then say, okay. So we've got the. We've only talked about a few ideas, a handful of ways that yep. we can do this. What we'd like to do moving into the summer is, although this is the end of season one, we are going to continue to post things over the summer, mostly because for the two of us, this is the highlight of our week, and I don't want to just stop. I think this is a hoot, yep. and it's great fun. All right, now let's see if we actually do it. Because remember when we started in October, right. I said on the bench, <laughs> sitting on the pier that was slowly sinking into uh-huh. toxic waste so badly that they had put a fence around it to keep uh-huh. people coming. Uh, I said, fences. under no condition will we go more than 30 minutes. Uh-huh. This summer, we aspire to have maybe shorter episodes. Mm-hmm. Right, we will aspire, see. Aspire. I am going to say we are going to aspire to thirty-minute episodes, <laughs> but talk about continuing to support and arm the insurgency <laughs> in this rising up against complacency. Mm-hmm. We're going to drill down into well, how do you develop a quant idea? How do mm-hmm. you think about your work? What you're able to do, more importantly, what you're not able to do, mm-hmm. and so how do you puzzle through? developing a quant idea. What are journals that are sympathetic to quantitative kind of perspectives? What are quantitative journals? What are the journals that fall in those interstitial regions between the two? Because you have the psychometricas, and then you also have the journal of applied whatever, but there's a whole distribution of journals that are individually well-suited for particular kinds of papers versus others. How do you go about finding available data sets that you could demonstrate a method? Is there's an art to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Throughout the summer, we're gonna talk about these different things of how do you do this? And then you know what would be fun, Greg, is if we're talking toward thinking about August again, maybe we could have a little rodeo where people tell us what they did over the summer give examples in their own work or papers or projects or things like that, and we could talk about how well was the armed rebellion (laughs) in rising up against the sometimes strong gravitational pull of, well, we do it that way because we've always done it that way.
1: Yeah, I would love to have people do little book reports on maybe ways that they have started to engage in quantitative projects or even just think about the development of quantitative projects. I would love to have people call up and leave us voicemail messages or post things. That would be a wonderful way for us to start off the fall with being able to share some of the things that people have been involved in. And I hope that we can contribute to people's development and skill set over the summer with these short little things that we're going <laughs> to post, Patrick, all right? Short.
0: There'll be 58 minutes instead of <laughs> 62 minutes. Okay, so I'm envisioning episode one of season two, I guess it would be, mm-hmm. what I did at Quanta Camp. Now, you can't see that I spelled camp with a Q. All right. So, our first episode come August is mm-hmm. going to be what I did at Quanta Camp. What do you think?
1: Okay. Done. Done. But we can't do that without people out there, right? So, think about things that you're going to be involved in and maybe even use. The Qpod Twitter feed to be able to connect with each other to serve that tinder function of, as Patrick called it, um, <laughs> but just to connect with other people who might be interested in in working together on certain projects, and then just engaging, helping you to think aloud. Right, I'm working on a project. Does anybody have any ideas about where I can learn more about this, or is anybody interested in that? Feel free to use this wonderful community that has developed over the last six months to be able to advance things. I'm so excited to be a part of it and can't wait to continue to be a part of it.
0: Well, and the common denominator to all of this is it's fun. This is fun to do. Yeah. My advisor taught me how to do the analysis this way. I learned this in first year stat. This is what the whatever software manual says that I should do. And then pause and say, I wonder what would happen if... And fill in the blank. Yeah. Remember, be motivated by the ice cream sandwich. It's
1: <laughs> all about the ice cream sandwich. Is that really the best pep talk you can give? Is it's all about the ice cream sandwich? Surely at the end of an entire season, you can rouse something up that's better than it's It's all about the ice cream sandwich. Come
0: on. You got- I can give a more rousing speech. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Sorry, you know that was part of my wedding vows, that if anybody ever says, even if it's at a funeral, Mm -hmm. and somebody says, surely she will be missed, is I am dedicated to standing up and say, she will be missed, and don't don't call me Shirley! (laughs) 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 This is going to be weird because it's going to come at the end of the episode and everything has already happened. So I'm going to use the Quantitude Time Machine Mm -hmm. on this, all right? And I'm not going to go back and get stupid whales in a stupid story plot. Nobody ever addressed in the Star Trek episode that they brought back two whales. Do you know the amount of hemophiliac that would have been fostered by having an entire race of whales just by two? It was so unrealistic to go back in time and only get two whales.
1: That was addressed in season two of Deep Space Nine.
0: All right. Well, I have my summer assignment Mm -hmm. then. But I am not able to give more rousing speeches than it's all about the ice cream sandwich. So Mm -hmm. what I am going to do is in the Mm post-processing, I am going to scatter throughout, and here's the time machine element, because I've already done it, and so I'm telling you now what I'm going to do, but I've already done, and so when you listen to what I'm going to do, it's been passed, (laughs) and has already happened, I am going to draw on the movie genres to sparkle in various Motivational speeches throughout time And how I'm going to be able to do this Is I am insanely busy right now Mm -hmm. And my time is almost unavailable And so I'm going to use it to do this I'm going to go back And find the clip from Braveheart And from Police Academy (laughs) And from whatever So
1: Braveheart and Police Academy (laughs) Can you get my kitty cat out of the tree? no problem, ma'am. Awesome. I, I hope that this has been motivating now that Patrick has used his time machine to, to did you say sparkle? Um, to sparkle in different uh, different clips. And yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs>
0: Thanks for (laughs) highlighting it, though, (laughs) is, you know, before it would kind of just have slipped by, but Uh attaboy.
1: Yeah, sure. I hope people have found the whole season somewhat motivating, and we really look forward to interacting with you all as you shape the future of your respective fields. Um, Take care, everybody, and thanks for being with us so far on what we hope is a a nice long journey together.
0: Thank you, and we will see you in the first week of Quanticamp. (laughs) Take care.
1: Hey, Potters! don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much wherever. Although, frankly, if they were real friends, they'd already be listening to Quantitude. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, where you can leave us a text or a voice message. You've been listening to Quantitude. How do we do it each week? Slide rules and punch cards. Today's episode has been sponsored by By Mediated Moderation, the behavioral science's answer to the jackalope. And by Windsorizing, hey, if you don't like those scores way out there, then just move them in a bit closer. Sure, why not? Who cares about your original hypotheses? And by Accountants, the life of any party. Well, any statistics party, anyway. Wow, who knew Ted from the budget office was so funny? This is most definitely not NPR. NPR. Great show, guys. Great show. Come this way. Ah, Thanks, Jiffy. Thanks, Jiffy. Way better than that other episode. And Patrick, you are getting so much better. Uh, thanks. You still talk a lot, though. Okay, this way, guys. The Coupon Chopper is waiting. Uh, when did we get a chopper? Jiffy? Stimulus check. I assume it will arrive before I get back. Um, where are you going? When the shelter-in-place orders lift... Frank and I are taking a road trip. Who's Frank? Oh, Sir Francis, I mean.
0: Okay. Well, you take care, and we'll be in touch. Hey, man, it's really windy up here. You might want to get off the roof, Jiffy. Take care, little guy.
1: I have to admit, the chopper is kind of sweet. Hey, look who's piloting. It's Tessa. Hi, guys. Buckle up. Hey, Where's Jiffy? He's right there. Wait, where is he? I don't see him anywhere.
0: What? Did he blow off the roof? That little guy weighs like eight pounds. Wait a minute. What was Jiffy's last name? Huh? Did he have a last name? Not that I know of. Oh, my God. You know what happens at the end of a season to the character with no last name?
1: Oh, no. Jiffy! Whee!